That's what we're going to be talking about again today. Last week um, was without a doubt one of the most important sermons that I ever um, could ever give because I titled it, Are You Really Saved? So big title, um, not always popular. I actually pushed it out on Facebook, so I sent it out to like, you know, where more people could view it, and it got lots of interesting comments, Um, but again, it's not always the most popular message, and it wasn't popular in that day uh, to say that there are millions of people, millions of people who call themselves Christians that are actually on the wide path, not the narrow path, and they're going to end up in a very real place called hell. Some people that claim even that they served God, that they performed miracles, that they cast out demons, they did all kinds of things in Jesus' name, and he's going to have to stand there and say, I'm sorry, I never knew you. Even though those people say, Lord, Lord, to say, I never had a relationship with you, I don't know you, you have to depart from me. And I've read this before, but it bears repeating. Uh, There's a cathedral in Lübeck, Germany, and it has this inscription on it. It says, you call me master and obey me not. You call me light and you see me not. You call me way and walk not. You call me life and desire me not. You call me wise and follow me not. You call me fair and love me not. You call me rich and ask me not. You call me eternal and seek me not. You call me gracious and trust me not. You call me noble and serve me not. You call me mighty and honor me not. You call me just and fear me not. If I condemn you, blame me not." That's a very powerful inscription that's inscribed in that church, in that cathedral. I said last week that the hallmark of a disciple is obedience. That's the hallmark of a disciple is obedience. Jesus says it several times throughout the scriptures. He's like, look, why do you call me Lord? Why do you call me master, boss, and you don't do what I say? And then later he says, okay, put master aside. Why do you say you love me and you don't follow my commandments? Either I'm Lord or you love me, either one, and you're not following what I've told you. We can make professions of faith all we want. We can run ourselves ragged doing good works. But if we don't truly make him Lord of our life, we don't make him master, then we're not a disciple. And Jesus is telling those people, I never knew you as a disciple because you never knew me as your Lord and Savior. Believing equals obedience. Salvation and obedience go hand in hand. You cannot separate them. They have to go together. The reality is that lots of people want to go to heaven, but very few people want to be disciples. Because that means taking up the narrow way. That means taking the narrow gate, the narrow path, denying ourselves, picking up our cross, right? Crucifying our flesh and living according to his plan. That's what that means to be a disciple. And there's a a song that lots of people have sung throughout the years. Uh, Lots of people have their own version of it, but the chorus remains the same. Lots of people want to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die, right? It's been saying over and over again throughout the years. Jesus bids you and I, his disciples, to come and die. That's what he says. Come die to yourself. If you want to try to save your life in this life, you're going to lose it. If it's all about what you can get, what you can gain, what you can grab for yourself selfishly, you're going to lose your life. But if you lose your life for my sake, 
If you're enveloped in me, if your identity is now in me because you have laid down your life, we're now in Christ, you're going to find your life because he's the only one that can provide life. And it's a very sobering message, one that should make us examine ourselves to make sure that A, we're being obedient and that, you know, B, that we have fruit in our lives. The evidence of salvation in our lives is obedience and fruit. That's how it works itself out practically. Well, today we're going to finish the Sermon on the Mount. We've been going through 5, 6, and 7 now for a while. I've really enjoyed it. We're going to finish it, but it's just as significant as the last because Jesus compares, he makes his final comparison of the kingdom to two houses. Matthew 7, chapter 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like the wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew against it and beat against it and the house fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for his teaching was as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Anyone who's ever been in church or around church for any length of time has heard this parable that Jesus is wrapping up the Sermon on the Mount with two houses, the final contrast and the final evidence that there will be very few who make it into heaven because only a few have built their house on the solid rock. Most people are building their house on the sand. Last what we talked about was empty words, people that said, Lord, Lord, but didn't actually know him as Lord. This week we're talking about empty works. Uh, Now, sometimes people will take these analogies, they'll take these parables, and they'll come up with all kinds of different different, uh, interpretations of them. Um, That's one of the reasons why we go verse by verse through the Bible. We have to read it in context. That way, uh, as Paul said, we can rightly handle the word of truth. Um, So that's what we're doing, going verse by verse through this. Um, We have two houses. One has been built on the sand. The other's been founded on bedrock. It's been laid on bedrock. Uh, When we moved up to Fort Wayne, Indiana, uh, we moved into a house. It was my favorite house. Um, I loved this house. It was in uh, a quiet neighborhood. It was in a cul-de-sac, and there was a school nearby with a playground, and we would ride our bikes to it. It was just a really nice place, or though it seemed... Because what I found out once we got in there um, was that it had a sump pump. Now, um, in Fort Wayne, the neighborhood was called Watersong, okay? And it wasn't abnormal in that area for things to have water themes because it was located near a bunch of lakes and it's near the Great Lakes, so lots of things had water themes. But this one was prophetic, the neighborhood of Watersong. You know, I never really thought much about it. I'd never had a sump pump in my house before. I didn't even really know what they did, okay? So it didn't bother me but I found out. I soon realized that our situation was pretty much um, very abnormal because water was flowing into this sump pump pit constantly, constantly. 
Now, if you don't know what a sump pump system is, they put, you know, a series of um, tiles and, you know, tubes around your house that collect the water because sometimes the water doesn't drain away like it's supposed to. And so it sits around the foundation of your house. And since the foundation isn't waterproof, it starts to seep in. If you don't have something to take the water away, it will flood your basement. And so it funnels down into this pit in your basement. And then there's a pump there and the pump sucks it up and ejects it out of the house. That's what the sump pump system is. I didn't know that but I got to be very familiar with it. And so um, during the dry season, okay, so think July, August, dry season, the pit would fill up and it would drain about every 30 or 45 minutes during the dry season, okay? And during the rainy season, it would go off about every three or four minutes during the rainy season, okay? That's bad, if you don't know. (laughs) Um, Water was flowing into there constantly. It gave me a lot of anxiety. This house was three years old, and it was on its third pump. Okay, if that tells you how hard it was working. I think our, the pump in our house is almost the age of the house. It's like 19, 20 years old. I should probably replace that now that I'm talking about it. But um, it gave me a great deal of anxiety. So part of my daily routine was going down to the basement, looking at the pit, checking the pump, checking the backup battery, checking the backup pump, (laughs) making sure that it was all ready just in case something happened. Now, um, fortunately, we never had any problems with it, but this house is a ticking time bomb. Eventually, the perfect storm is going to happen where it gets flooded because the pump breaks and the water's just too much. One day, I was outside talking to my neighbor, and I was asking him if he was experiencing the same kind of situation as I was, and he told me, he said, yeah, when I saw them digging the foundation out for your house... I had my builder put in two sump pumps in my house, he said, because I saw the soil and how sandy it was and how much water there was in it. And apparently the developer had picked up quite a deal on this property because it used to be a very marshy area, very marshy, sandy soil. And they decided to put a neighborhood there. And our foundation was below the water table. And so there was constantly water flowing in there. It was a big source of anxiety for me. But when he told me that about how the soil is very sandy, I thought of this parable immediately. Freaked me out. But one day, one day, somebody told me there, they said there's only two kinds of basements in Fort Wayne. There's the ones that have had water and the ones that are going to get water. Eventually, it's going to happen. And great will be the cost of that flood, the day that it happens. Uh, But we were fortunate. We didn't have to deal with that. But the house that Jesus is talking about here, the house is the sum of a person's life. Okay, and what they did while they were here on earth, what they did with their time. With their time. The house that's built on sand is a house that's built on works, okay? And any other belief, any other belief system that isn't founded on Jesus, that isn't standing on the grace of Jesus Christ, this is the difference between the obedient and the disobedient hearers. Jesus had just given them the divine blueprint okay, for salvation. And now he's saying, what are you going to do with the information that I have just given you? Some hear and some obey. Some trust in Jesus's righteousness for their lives and others build on the sand and they try to earn their own righteousness through their works. So let's look at the similarities of these houses, okay? First similarity, they both hear the gospel message. Uh, Both believe that they know the way to salvation. Remember, Jesus is talking to religious people, says he's talking to his disciples, and then the crowds are listening in. He's talking to people who know about religion. They've been given the blueprints, and they both begin to build a spiritual house, but the fool thinks that his house is secure based on his own plans, based on his own knowledge. He thinks that the life he's living is good enough 
Okay, he's a self-proclaimed Christian. He's not really sure, but he thinks his life is pleasing to the Lord. Both have confidence that their house is going to stand, but only one of them is built on Jesus. So both hear the gospel message. Number two, they both have the same general location. We know this because the same storm hit both houses. So outwardly, the circumstances of their life were fairly similar. Um, It wasn't that the house on the sand was built in a place where there were more storms. It was just the location where they chose to build. You could say that they were in the same town, uh, that they attended the same church, that they heard the same preaching maybe served in the same kids' ministry, or gave financially. The foolish man basically lived and believed, sort of, he looked like on the outside that he was living the same type of life as the wise man. It certainly appeared as though they believed and lived alike. They were both religious, both moral people. Some people on the outside looking in may have even thought that the foolish man had a better, uh, a better situation because he was closer to the water. He had beachfront property, right? That looks pretty good. Now, there's a couple of similarities, but that's kind of where it ends. Now, let's take a look at how these houses were different. There weren't any noticeable differences on the outside. You couldn't tell from just looking at them. The big, the big difference that Jesus is talking about, as he's been talking about throughout the Sermon on the Mount, is what's going on on the inside, the places that we can't see the parts that aren't evident from the outside. One of them acted on God's word. The other did not. It comes down to obedience versus disobedience. There was a guy named Sir Leonard Wood, and he went and visited the king of France. He had an invitation, and he went there. He had dinner with him, and the king was so pleased with him. He enjoyed his conversation so much that he invited him back the next night for dinner. And the next day, Uh, Sir Leonard is walking down the hall, and the king is walking down, and they meet in the hall, and the king says, how are you here? I didn't expect to hear you today, you know, to see you today. How is it that you're here? And Sir Leonard kind of says, he's like, well, didn't the king invite me over for dinner tonight? And the king said, well, yeah, I did, but you never answered my invitation. And Sir Leonard said probably one of the most profound sentences in all of his life. He said, an invitation from the king is never to be answered, it's to be obeyed never to be just answered. It's to be obeyed. And if you think about the parable in Matthew 22, where Jesus is talking about the wedding feast and the dad has prepared the wedding feast. And he says to his servants, he says, go out and talk to all the people, tell all the people that have been invited to the wedding, tell them that the feast is ready and invite them into my house. It's time. They've been waiting. And now is the time for the wedding. And the servants go out and they come back and they say, we're sorry. You know, we talked to all the people that you sent invitations to, and all of them had excuses. They all had reasons why they couldn't come. And the, and the father was furious, and he said, listen, go out and find whoever you can. Just invite whoever you can. Um, go to the highways and the hedges, literally, and find people and bring them in so that my house will be full. And this story was related to the Jewish people. They had the invitation. Jesus had given them the invitation, but they rejected it, and that opened up the door for you and I, for the Gentiles, those that are in the highways and the hedges, that were in the ditches. We were lost. We got the invitation because they chose not to answer it. Here at the end of his message, uh, Jesus is giving them an exhortation, which is kind of like an encouragement, but also with a warning. Now that I've delivered all this information to you on how God's kingdom works, what are you going to do with it? Are you going to use the divine specifications that I've just given you to build your life upon, or are you going to use your own plan? 
obedience or disobedience. Now, in this analogy, the foundation on the rock represents God's word. The the rock represents Jesus, okay? But the foundation is his word. Our whole life, the foundation of our life, is to be built on God's word. John said that Jesus was the word made flesh and dwelt among us. The rock is Jesus. Foundation is his word, The house that's built on sand is on works and on man's opinions. You know, when a house is being built, the very first thing they do is prepare the foundation. That's the most important thing. Um, And as followers of Jesus, our priority needs to be preparing ourselves by being in the scriptures, by being in the word of God. That's what the foundation of our life is built on. If you're not in the word, how can you know what kind of house you're building? How can you know where your foundation is and what kind of materials you're building with? Ben Phillips, who preached a couple weeks ago, um, actually builds houses. He's a builder. And one day, um, he lived in a neighborhood that got hit by a tornado, and his house actually sustained quite a bit of damage. And when he called me that morning, I went over there to help them get stuff out of the house. And as we were doing that, I looked across the street, and in the cul-de-sac, there was a house that had been turned 45 degrees on its foundation. It was weird. It's like somebody just took the house and went like this. Now, it's amazing that the house itself was intact. Somebody built the house right. They used the right materials, but the foundation was prepared correctly too because it never moved. If the foundation hadn't been right, that house would have crumbled. But as it was, it was constructed well, but the winds turned it, but it was still standing. That makes sense. In Matthew 16, Jesus and his disciples arrive at a place called Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus asked them this question. He says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, that phrase, Son of Man, comes from the book of Daniel, and it was prophetic. It refers to the Messiah. And so the disciples all start chiming in, and they say, well, some people say that, you know, John the Baptist. Uh, some people say Elijah. Some people say Jeremiah. Some, you know, say some of the other prophets. And then Jesus asked them the most important question, the pivotal question, the question that every single person has to answer in their life. And he says, who do you say that I am? Not other people. Who do you say that I am? And Peter, never afraid to speak up, he answers the question. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And these next two verses are critical. Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You're no longer Simon. I'm changing your name to Peter or Petros in the Greek or, you know, or I'm sorry, Cephas in the Aramaic. We hear Paul call him that Cephas. And it means stone. That's what Petros means, or Cephas. It means stone. Now, there's been lots of discussion throughout the years on this name change. Okay, Jesus has changed his name from Simon to Peter. He changes it to stone. And then he says, on this rock, I will build my church. Now, the word rock in the Greek is Petra. Does anybody remember the 80s rock group Petra? Oh, one of my favorites, Petra. That's the name in the Greek. Your name is now stone, but on this rock, I will build my church. Now, is Jesus saying that he's going to build his church on Peter? That sounds kind of strange, doesn't it? He's not going to build his church on Peter. He's going to build his church on the rock-solid confession that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He's the only one that can give us life. He's the only one that can save. That is the rock that our Christianity is built on. 
Peter was a stone. He was going to be a huge stone in the church. He was going to be basically, you know, an overseer of the church there in Jerusalem. But Jesus said, on that confession, what you just confessed, that's what the, my church is going to be built on, Peter. Now, in that, uh, in that area, it's not uncommon uh, because it doesn't rain very much right over there. It's very arid, very dry. And so some of the ground around looks very rocky. Okay, it's uh, it doesn't look sandy, and so to look at it, it would be easy to build upon, and you won't know until the rains come, until the floods come through, that it actually is sandy. And when the moisture hits it, when the rain and the floods hit it, it starts to give way, it starts to dissolve. But the difference is, the wise man dug down to where actual rock was. The only one, the other one thought it was rock. It was mistaken. It was actually sand. The false prophets that Jesus mentioned just a few verses ago, those are the real estate agents that are selling real estate. They're selling houses down on the beach. Those are the false prophets. Their theology is unstable. Okay, it's unreliable. It's uh, full of opinions. There's no substance to it. The Pharisees in Jesus' day were building on sandy soil. Because they thought that their man-made rules, that their opinions, their commentaries on the scripture, they thought that that was good enough. All the works that they did were going to be good enough to save them. And people looked at their spiritual houses from the outside, and they looked pretty good. The Pharisees' spiritual houses looked pretty good, but they were built on the wrong foundation. They were more concerned with the appearance of the house. It was kind of like putting a new coat of paint on a house where the basement's filling up with water and the termites are eating it from the inside out. It's basically what the Pharisees were doing. Uh, put that picture up here of the Sydney Opera House. Now, most people are familiar with the Sydney Opera House. It's kind of adored all over the world for its architecture, but you wouldn't be able to tell it from the outside, but it actually ranks as one of the world's largest failed projects in terms of planning and construction. The structure was supposed to be completed in four years at an overall cost of about $6 million. This is back in like the 50s and 60s and 70s, okay? And it was supposed to be completed in four years of about $6 million. Instead, it took 14 years and roughly $69 million to complete. And what happened was the opera hall and the stage production halls got switched around. Somebody read the blueprints incorrectly. And so when they got in there, the musicians couldn't hear themselves because the acoustics weren't right. And that error, that goof, cost them $63 million <laughs> over what they were supposed to spend. Pretty costly mistake because they didn't follow the plans correctly. Religious people have been given the same instructions but neglect to followers. They are the hearers but not the doers. Last week I said a true mark of a disciple is one who obeys. It's not hearing and believing. Anybody can hear and believe. It's about believing and doing. A simple hearer's experience with the gospel message is going to be shallow. It's going to be superficial and it's going to be short-lived. In Jesus' parable of the sower and the soils, it says that some of the seed, which the seed represents the gospel, some of it falls on rocky places where there isn't much soil. And it says that those sprang up quickly. Not much soil, didn't have any place to go, so it sprang up quickly. But when the sun came out, it was scorched and it withered away. Now, because those people were excited about the gospel, Okay, they received it gladly, but they didn't, they were very shallow. They didn't dig down. The soil of their heart wasn't plowed up. 
And so there was nowhere to go. So it shot up very quickly. But when the trials of life came, they bailed out. They liked God's promises, but not God's requirements. Building on the sand is easy. It's easy believism because there's no commitment. It's easy evangelism because there's no offense. It's easy discipleship because there's no accountability. That's what building on the sand is like. Most people don't want to do the hard work of digging down to bedrock and laying the foundation of their lives on Jesus, and he calls them foolish. Now, we live in a very disposable society, one that values speed um, and cheapness over quality. We just don't make things to last anymore. And they're superficial, just like the house that was built on the sand, a life that requires very little planning and very little effort, very little concern for quality or for standards, a life aimed at what's pleasing rather than what's right, what's enjoyable rather than what's true, and what satisfies them instead of what satisfies the Lord. A life that might enjoy some spiritual highs, but doesn't go through the depths. If you read the Psalms, we read all about David and his spiritual highs, but he also plumbed the depths. A life that's built on the sand doesn't plumb the depths. The wise men, on the other hand, builds carefully because he knows the importance of what he's building. In Luke's gospel, it says that the wise men dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. It requires maximum effort, and he required his best. In 1 Corinthians 3, uh, it tells us that the importance of building the house according to God's plan, and here's what Paul writes. It says, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and some, someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. Because it'll be revealed by fire, the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. The most tragic difference between these two houses are their destinies. Those who would reject Christ's plans don't just forfeit Christ's blessings. Okay, they forfeit eternity itself because they're doomed. They're doomed to an eternity separated from the Lord because their house is destroyed It's not just damage. Jesus says the house built on the sand was completely destroyed. It was complete loss. But the house that was built on the rock stood firm. Now, what Paul's talking about with the Corinthians, when he says the day will disclose it, he's talking about judgment day. I listened to a sermon this week by um, one of the the greatest preachers of our time named uh, Leonard Ravenhill. And he had a sermon named The Judgment Seat of Christ, one of the best sermons that I've heard. And the Lord directed me back to it this week. And I listened to it, and there were some things in that that um, were very applicable to our message here today and how we're building our house. And so I wanted to share some of it with you guys. Um, Almost always when I hear this message, um, it has to do with the storms of life or the trials that we go through. Um, And that's certainly true. But what Jesus is talking about here with these two houses is where we're going to spend eternity. The ultimate test that every person is going to face. How did you build your house? On judgment day, every thought, every action, every intention is going to be exposed. It's going to be laid bare. 
Was it was it wood, hay, and straw, or was it with precious materials? Because it's all going to pass through the fire. How much is going to be left standing? Now, and the Corinthians would have understood this analogy perfectly because when Paul wrote to them about what's going to pass through the fire, actually about 200 years earlier, part of their history, 200 years earlier, the Romans had set fire to Corinth and burned the whole thing to the ground. And the only thing that would have been left standing would have been the things that were built of stone. And so they would have understood this perfectly when Paul says, what's going to pass through the fire and what's going to be left? The judgment day they had was by the Romans and very little was left standing. Now, there'll actually be two judgments in heaven. There's going to be two judgments. One is going to be the great white throne judgment. That's where the nations of the earth are judged and all the unbelievers are judged. It's going to be a terrifying day. The final tribunal with Jesus sitting on the judgment throne. And he's going to look quite a bit different than all of the depictions that people have made of him over the years. He's not going to be looked like the effeminate Jesus that gets painted so often, that gets pictured. He's going to be the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords sitting on his judgment seat. And John writes in his gospel in Revelation, sorry, he writes in Revelation in the book, that when he saw Jesus, he fell down at his feet as though dead. Now, this is John. He calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. He reclined on Jesus at the Last Supper. They were close. But when he saw Jesus in his glorified state, he fell down at his feet. How much more, you and I? It's kind of popular in our day to have a very casual view of Jesus, that he's our buddy, he's our friend. But John, when John sees him, he falls down at his feet as dead. We will do the same thing when we see Jesus in his glorified body. There will be a judgment day for the believers too. Um, a lot of people say, you know, that we are free, that there's no condemnation. There's not going to be a judgment. Now, you're not going to be judged for your sins. You're not going to be judged for your sins. Jesus paid the price for your sins on the cross. But everything that we've done here on earth is going to be judged. Our actions, our works right? What we build with. Did we do it out of selfish ambition or did we do it through the, you know, for the Lord? Because if we did it selfishly, it's going to be burned up. We're going to suffer loss in that. Now, it doesn't mean that you're not going to go to heaven, but what it does mean is that the things you've done here, if they were done selfishly, if they weren't done for the Lord, if you just wanted to look good to other people, it's all going to be burned up. We need a new picture of Jesus. He is the God of love. He is the God of patience, and he does sit on a throne of mercy. Now, now he sits on a throne of mercy. But in that day, on judgment day, all mercy will be gone. There will not be any mercy because it's judgment day. The great 18th century preacher, John Edwards, um, he, he said this. He lived with this thought ever at the forefront of his mind. And he prayed to the Lord. He said, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. Stamp eternity on my eyeballs, Lord. And if we had eternity on our eyeballs, we would live very differently. We would build with different materials, if that makes sense. Materials that are going to last. Judgment Day is going to be the day of great exposure. Imagine all the people throughout history, all of the great men and women throughout history, standing before Jesus when the books are open and everything is revealed. Imagine Pontius Pilate standing before Jesus. The great reversal. The man who stood in judgment of Jesus now standing in front of him to be judged for all eternity. We read this in Revelation 6. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as fig trees shed its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. 
And the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful, everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of them who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand it? The mighty men of this earth, the great leaders, the ones that got all the praise and the ones that were feared, those whose houses looked grand, that looked like they were secure, built on the sand. And in that day, they'll be begging for the mountains to fall on them literally to get away from the face of Jesus. Everything that we do here is going to end up in a pile of ash if it's not done for Jesus. And if we are not built on the rock of Jesus Christ, it's not going to be built on our works. Works flow out of a relationship with Jesus, out of our love for him, not to try to earn righteousness from him. Only what's done for the Lord is going to make it through the fire. Hebrews 12 tells us that our God is a consuming fire, which speaks of his holiness, but also speaks of his judgment. Will we remind ourselves of the severity of God? God is love, but there's also judgment. All the work that we've done with impure motives and selfish ambition is going to be burned up. It doesn't matter how many good works we do. If it wasn't done right, that only means that the ash heap is going to be higher. It needs to be done of a pure heart and love for our Savior. There's a poem by C.T. Studd. Uh, It's too long to read here, so I'll just read uh, several stanzas. It says, Two little lines I heard one day traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one, soon with its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let my love with fervor burn, and from the world now let me turn, living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one, now let me say thy will be done. When at last I'll hear the call, I know I'll say it was worth it all. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. It's not the quantity of our works, but it's the quality of our works that are going to survive. If our house is made with quality materials, it will survive. It's interesting when you consider that wood, hay, and straw are all things that grow above the surface. They're all things that can be seen very clearly, but they are all things that can be devoured in an instant. But gold and silver and precious stones, those all are things that are created below the surface in places where nobody can see. It has to be mined up. It has to be dug out. They're in secret places. So in wrapping up here, let's talk about our private lives and what goes on in places where nobody else can see. That's what Jesus has been chipping away at all throughout the Sermon on the Mount. What's going to happen when God puts the fire to all of our works? Will it be precious or will it suffer loss? Paul writes about all the riches we have in Jesus. When the whole of our life is tested, will we be spiritually rich or will we be standing there spiritually poor? He tells us to build with gold, silver, and precious stones. 
In Revelations, again, Revelations 3, 17 and 18, Jesus says this to the church in Laodicea. He says, you say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and I do not need a thing. But you don't realize that you're wretched and pitiful and poor and blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. So what is this gold that we're supposed to buy from Jesus? I'm going to play a clip here from this sermon from Leonard Ravenhill. And it's not only true that we live in a world of bankrupt politics, we live in a world, and this is the most tragic of all, of a bankrupt church. Isn't it awesome to think that all this stuff, we sing, oh, that will be glory for me. Friend, you've got one big stumbling block. Let me rush through this. Time's going. Your life is wood, the fire's going to come. Hay, the fire's going to come to it. Stubble, the fire's going to come to it. But what is your life is silver and gold and precious stones. What is gold a sign of? Gold, I believe, there is a sign of our devotion to God. You wouldn't get much gold for $10,000 today. And I could have a small uh, <clears throat> induction crucible here and put your $10,000 worth of gold and press buttons and, and it moves and moves. What happens when you burn gold? Nothing. All you do is change it from solid to liquid, but you don't reduce it. Can you see all the saints of all the ages? And Leonard Ravenel is standing there before a, a Christ whose eyes are full of holiness, where the place is breathing holiness, where there's all the majesty of an awesome God. And he reads the record of my poor life before all the saints of all the ages. And he puts the fire to my devotional life. Am I just a good showman? I sure like to preach because God called me to preach. And I don't care how I preach. I don't care whether you believe me either. I'm not responsible for that. I preach out of my heart all I believe and I die for it. But say, am I just a showman? What's my, what's my secret life like? We were talking just earlier of Yesterday, I guess, about the woman that came with an alabaster box of ointment. You know, I read that story for years and heard it preached on before ever I realized she came for one reason only. She came to worship Jesus. How do you know? Because she brought the most sacrificial gift that she had. How do you know? Because she never said a word while she was there. How do you know? Because she said, I won't wash his feet with water, I'll wash them with tears. I won't dry his head, uh, his feet with, with a gorgeous towel, I'll wipe his feet with the hair of my head. And she poured out that costly fragrance. And then she wiped his feet again. So what happened? The fragrance she poured out on him came back on her. Why isn't my life more fragrant? Because you don't take time to be holy. Because you think if you stuff all the stuff you get at Agape, which I'm sure is good, or some other Bible school, that this is... No, 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 no. God isn't going to measure your intellect the size of your hat. He's going to try... With his fire, my devotional life, I think again of a statement Dr. Tozer made to me once. He said, Len, you know what? He said, we'll hardly get our feet out of time into eternity and gaze on eternity with what we bow our heads in shame and humiliation and say, my God. Look at all the riches there were in Jesus Christ. And I've come to the judgment seat almost a pauper. 
For God has not merely given us Jesus Christ, he's given us all things. And because there isn't enough joy in the house of God, we need entertainment. Because entertainment is the devil's substitute for joy. Because there isn't enough power in the house of God, people are always looking for the last scientific development, and their hair stands up when they see some fancy show on TV. I think before we point the finger at the world, we better turn to the church and say, look, we better all get sackcloth and ashes and humble ourselves and say, Almighty God, when I see the church in the New Testament, they didn't have stately buildings, they didn't have paid evangelists, they didn't have a lot of money, they didn't have organization, they did, couldn't get on TV and beg, but I'll tell you what they did, they turned the world upside down. And I'm embarrassed to be part of the church of Jesus today because I believe it's an embarrassment to a holy God. Most of our joy is clapping our hands and having a good time and then afterwards we're talking all the dribble of the world. Oh, to be lost in him, to be consumed in him. Pretty convicting message. He goes on for about an hour and 20 minutes that way. Um, and he may have even gotten cut off at the end. I don't know. But uh, I, it would do me good to listen to that message three or four times a year because it's extremely humbling um, when he talks about holiness and he talks about, you know, what we're building with. And, you know, when I'm thinking about the houses, uh, the one that was built on the foundation of Jesus Christ was also built with the right materials. The one that was built on the sand was built with the wrong materials, wood, hay, and straw. He talks about gold, gold, our devotional life, right? All the riches of Christ are found in the scriptures, so how's our devotional life? Are we spending time mining out the truths in God's word? God's word is the pure word of God. There are no impurities. There are no imperfections in it. If you want to build with gold, you got to start with the scriptures. So what is silver? If you know the scriptures, you'll be able to speak them out. You'll be able to speak them out and share them with other people. Proverbs 10.20 says that the tongue of the righteous is as choice silver, but the heart of the wicked is worth little. If your mind's filled with what's right, you'll be able to share what's what's right. Solomon calls that wisdom. Proverbs 25, 11 says, A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver. In a chaotic world where people find it very difficult to tell what's real, one of the most valuable things that we can give them is the truth. So hopefully we can be silver-tongued saints speaking truth and love to people around us. And lastly, precious stones. God gave Moses very specific instructions on what the high priest was supposed to wear. And one of the things that the high priest wore was called the breastplate. And on the breastplate that he would put on, it had 12 precious stones. And on each stone was written one of the tribes of Israel. 12 stones, 12 tribes of Israel. And he would wear that over his heart when he went in to intercede for the people. When he went in to serve for them in the tabernacle, he would wear that over his heart. I closed last week by saying, I think one of the greatest works that we can do is prayer. Intercession is one of the greatest works that we can do. And the beautiful thing about it is anybody can do it. It doesn't, it doesn't rely on skill set. It doesn't require our knowledge. Everybody can pour their heart out, out to the Lord. And uh, like he said, it's not going to be our intellect. It's not going to be the size of our hat. It's going to be our devotion and our love for him. And one of the ways we can do that is through prayer. 
regardless of our giftings, anyone can do it. So how are we building our house? Are we in the word? Are we speaking truth? Are we sharing the truth of God's word with other people? Are we praying? These are the things that make up a house that's going to stand firm on the rock. I read earlier this week that uh, the fall parade of homes tour is happening next week. And uh, I don't know that the weather's going to participate that much in uh, pretending that it's fall. But um, I wonder I wonder how many Christians would want to give people a tour of their spiritual house. Have they followed God's plan or have they followed their own specifications? I'll close with this. Uh, This is a poem by Martha Nicholson. It's called His Plan for Me. When I stand at the judgment seat and he shows me his plan for me, the plan of my life as it might have been, had he had his way, and I see how I blocked him here and checked him there, and I would not yield my will. Will there be grief in my Savior's eyes, grief though he loves me still? He would have me rich, and I stand here poor, stripped of all but his grace, while memory runs like a haunted thing down the paths I cannot retrace. Then my desolate heart will well nigh break with tears that I cannot shed. I shall cover my face with my empty hands. I shall bow my uncrowned head. Lord of the years that are left to me, I give them to thy hand. Take me and break me. Mold me to the pattern that you have planned. All very serious, all very heavy. But let me leave you with some encouragement. You might say, Nathan, I'm not sure that I've done much building with gold and silver and precious stones. I think there's a lot of wood, hay, and straw in my spiritual house. Well, let me encourage you that the Lord we serve is a great remodeler. He loves remodels. He can take your life and transform it from the inside out. He can replace all of that wood, hay, and straw with gold, silver, and precious stones. All you have to do is let him in. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If you don't shut him out, you won't be shut out. Lay your foundation on Jesus Christ and your house will stand firm. Not only will it stand firm in this life, it will also stand firm in the next because you've built with the right materials and you've built it on the rock of Jesus Christ. Next week, we start chapter 8 and Jesus comes down off the mountainside. He comes down off the mountain. Guess what he finds? People. (laughs) People. It's wonderful to be on the mountain. But those times are short-lived. We walk it out practically in the valley where we meet people. So first, we do some introspection. We look at our own life. Jesus has talked for three chapters about what our inside spiritual life looks like. Here's how God's economy operates. Here's how the world works. Are you living this way or are you living this way? It's obedience versus disobedience. Do what I tell you to do, and your house is going to stand firm, not only here, but also in eternity. You're going to have life, people that are the pretenders, people that um, say they love God, but they live like the world every other single day. They're going to be very surprised in that day when they stand before him, and they find out that they were building on sand. But I would encourage you, this is an exhortation. This is an encouragement, but also a warning. Jesus is the great remodeler. He can change your life. All you have to do is let him in. Amen? Amen. You know, this um, last song is one that we sing quite a bit. It's um, Firm Foundation. 
He is our firm foundation, the rock on which I stand. Um, you know, when life, life gets shifty, things move around on us. The floods, the wind, the waves, it gets terrifying. But we can take comfort, we can rest in the fact that if our life is built on Jesus, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what the world brings at us. It doesn't matter the storms of life and the trials that we face because ultimately, ultimately, we're going to stand before him and he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. You did it. You were obedient. You listened to my voice. You followed the divine specifications for your life. Enter the joy of your master. That's what we want to hear. And that's what I want to leave you with today. Devotional life, prayer, right? things. Gold, silver, precious stones. What we're speaking, what we're praying, what we're reading in the word. That's what we need. Let's sing one more time. Christ is my firm